Okay, well, welcome to our latest episode of uh, Guardians of the Flame. And this is uh, one of the series, this new season that we're doing, where we're a bunch of these podcasts we're uh, able to film, which is great. So we're, you're able to kind of look in and see our conversation. Um, and, uh, and yeah, this, uh, we're really grateful for the Community Relations Council, which has helped to kind of fund this season. Uh, and um, yeah, it's, we're, it's a real joy, this adventure of producing interviews with people that have something to say about the world we live in, um, about conflict, about their experience, um, and sometimes how faith uh, can intersect with all of those parts of life and humanity and conflict, and how faith can sometimes be something that can be destructive, but how it can also be something very life-giving. Um, and so... Uh, I want to introduce, um, th this is the first time I've introduced someone who is actually a family member of mine. Um, I'll just tell a quick story as my part of in introducing Bruce Clark. Uh, a few years ago, I was on Twitter uh, looking at a, um, a Northern Irish journalist, William Crawley, who was doing a series on um, people from the north of Ireland here who had emigrated to, Nor uh, to New Zealand. And I wrote to him and said, well, I my forebears uh, were from, from Ulster, from Northern Ireland. And he said, are you any relation to Bruce Clark? And then I said, well, I do have relatives in Upperlands, this small village, kind of halfway between Belfast and Derry, Londonderry. And, uh, and so he gave me Bruce's details. I found him and, and we are indeed, we call each other cousins, um, kind of not exactly that, but uh, our, our um, great-grandparents were friends and, well, they were brothers. And, uh, and if, so we might touch a little bit on that as we start there. So Bruce is, uh, has had four decades of experience as a foreign correspondent. He's worked for Reuters, the Financial Times, the Times of, Lo the Times of London, and uh, indeed The Economist, where he, where he writes now uh, regularly. Um, and so Bruce has had an experience of kind of writing about the world and particularly Europe during these decades where we've seen the fall of the Soviet Union, kind of great changes uh, to particularly in the former Soviet Union, places like former Yugoslavia, the Balkan Wars. Um, he's written a series of several books. Um, he has great expertise on, on Greece and Russia and, and that whole area. He's a linguist, speaks a number of languages. And, uh, and so it was a pleasure to meet a relative of mine who is so intelligent <laughs> and, and such a good, kind guy. So um, I just, it's a real privilege, Bruce, to be able to sit with you and have a, a conversation on film. Uh, we usually have a chat about once a week and every time I'm kind of thinking I wish we could record this because you say stuff that's just quite brilliant. So thanks, Bruce, for taking the time. Well, it's wonderful to be here. And I must say, by Irish standards, we're certainly cousins. We're third cousins, I think, which is uh, really quite close in Irish terms. So, yeah, um, yeah. And nice. as you say, our great, uh, well, my great-grandfather and your great-great-grandfather great -great were, were brothers. So that's, you know, that's, that's close enough. Yeah, yeah. So if you'll forgive us as we start this interview, I kind of would like to do a, just a short kind of homage to the Clark family, or not an homage, but a, a little bit of digging into, 
I suppose what our common background is, because it is interesting. Um, uh, could you kind of just sketch out um, the village of Upperlands, the Clark family, uh, and a little bit of our history, and then I might ask you a little about my own great-great-great-grandfather. Yes. Well, the Clark family is an unusual survival in a way, uh, because in one way or another, uh, the Clarks have been involved with processing and making linen for, by my calculation, nine generations. Uh, and that all began sort of sometime in the mid-18th century when our common forebear uh, found a place that was uh, suitable to drive a water wheel, um, a stretch of the river that would just be of the right gradient and um, the right flow of water to drive a wheel. And he harnessed that wheel to a beetling engine, which was uh, a very particular stage in the linen process. It's a process whereby linen is battered with wooden blocks uh, and made shinier and flatter. Uh, and thanks to the mechanization of that process, linen became an industry and not just a craft, but an industry. Um, and you might say the rest is history. Mm. There have been a succession of linen booms in Northern Irish history. One was in the 18th century, uh, very much linked with migration to the United States and the trade with North America. Uh, and then a second linen boom uh, in the 19th century, early 20th century even, and the Clark family, in a modest way, uh, was part of that boom. Um, maybe just as well in a modest way. It wasn't quite like the great linen families of Belfast. It was always rooted in the soil, and you know, agriculture was never far away. And so after those booms, it didn't crash so dramatically as some of the linen families did in Belfast. It somehow trundled on. Uh, and I'm glad to say that the business does still trundle on on a smaller scale, but it's still engaged in uh, processing linen cloth and producing uh, you know, very high quality interior decoration fabrics and so on. So in one way or another, it is uh, plowing ahead uh, towards its 300th anniversary. Wow, that's amazing. And the, the Clark family itself, um, uh, we've, we're kind of scattered around the world. And of course, my branch went to New Zealand. Um, uh, I did find it fascinating. And if my, my siblings listen to this interview, they'll, they'll find it fascinating just to hear some of what you've, um, you know, you know about my, it was my great, great grandfather. Um, William Clark, That's right, indeed, became yeah, known yeah, as yeah, New yeah, Zealand yes, Willie. Yeah, yeah, as indeed, um, yeah, yeah, yes, yes, yeah, And uh, yeah, yeah. he moved out to New Zealand. What do you, what can you tell me about my great great grandfather? This is like one of those episodes. Indeed, of that. absolutely. Yeah, Where yeah, are you yeah, from? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. Well, I mean, picture of the family that uh, your forebear and my forebear were born into. Um, now, uh, uh, they were brought up in quite a grand house um, called Appertain, newly built in about 1850. Uh, and nine siblings altogether were raised in this house. Um, their mother was a member of the quite grand Newport family of Waterford, mm. um, so that the Clark family, who were linen makers, linen processors, had uh, sort of moved up a step socially by marrying into the grand Newports, uh, and they celebrated this by building a rather handsome, white, Georgian-style mansion called Appertain, and they raised nine children there, now, your forebear was the oldest of those children. My forebear was the youngest. 
Um, your forebear was uh, William Clark, um, named after his father, uh, and he was clearly sort of rather spoiled as a child. Uh, it was assumed that he would be the one who would go into the business and inherit the business. Um, but fate took a different turn, um, that uh, very young, uh, he married somebody who was of a different class background. Religion wasn't the problem, but, but class somehow was. Um, and it was considered advisable uh, that, as my father puts it, uh, the problem be solved by emigration. Um, and uh, the, the the couple wed in Manchester Cathedral um, and uh, in a, a, a quiet wedding there. Uh, and they took ship for New Zealand. Uh, they were given sort of a roll of linen as good luck uh, and started, I think, initially a retail business there. Um, and and uh, you know, they must have had a hardish life in the remotest part of the North Island of New Zealand. Uh, but they were... Uh, extremely fecund. They had 10 children altogether, uh, and as a result of which many, many people bearing the name of Clark uh, live all over New Zealand, uh, and some of those people have you know, found their way back to Northern Ireland as, as, as you have. But I think it, it's a sad story in a way, because there was clearly an estrangement uh, between William Clark uh, and his parents and his remaining siblings. Um, not a total estrangement because many of his children, those 10 children who grew up in New Zealand, found their way back to Appertane and to Appellands in, in wartime. Uh, and so you know, the, the, the connection was maintained, mm. although you know, the personal story of William Clark was perhaps quite a sad one. Mm. And... Uh I, you told me one little detail which I have used now as a kind of an anecdote because it's a great mm. story about he and his new bride um, kind of getting the, the boat to New Zealand, but they, they missed the boat. And well, That's right. Yes, yes indeed. Yes, yes. And, and, and the, the, the boat that they nearly got uh, actually sank. I know. So yeah. they had a lucky escape. You know, fate obviously yeah. intended them to survive and to thrive in New Zealand as all mm. their uh, descendants have done. Mm. So they... Yeah, I, so I make the point that if, if you feel like you've missed the boat, that maybe that was actually, there's something That's very, very often that. the case. Yeah, yes, yes. Yeah. I, think, you know, I think that many of us will testify in life that, mm. you know, flights we nearly caught or, you know, boats we nearly took mm. or options we nearly took in life mm. actually mm. turn out to be a narrow escape. You know, that's mm. one, one of life's truths. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd love to kind of start talking more about your um, career, but maybe even before that is your love of language. Um, you, you're fluent, among other things, in, in Russian, uh, in Greek, French. Um, can you tell us about your early days uh, in, um, first of all, in, in Upperlands and then at, at boarding yes, school? Yes, I mean, I, I was a bit of an unusual child growing up in, in a remotish part of Mid-Ulster mm -hmm. um, because I, I always had a passion for languages, both ancient and modern. Mm -hmm. um, indeed, you know, if you'd met me when I was about nine or ten years old, my most prized possession was a Dutch linguaphone course, um, which my father had sort of taken a slight interest in learning Dutch because he had Dutch business partners and he didn't really make much progress. But I grabbed hold of his books and his coursework and so on, and I began teaching myself Dutch uh, solo. And actually, you know, I, I do have a modest understanding of Dutch. Mm. Um, and whenever I go to the Netherlands, uh, it comes back to me quite rapidly. Mm. So, I mean, I was a language freak, if you like, from a very young age. Yeah. Okay, so then you started into a career into what became, uh, you know, these many decades of working as a far, foreign correspondent. Um, in my teenage years, probably the most um, 
kind of iconic moments of that were probably the release of Nelson Mandela from prison and the fall of the Berlin Wall and then the ultimate fall of the Soviet Union. Um, uh, you were there at that time, as you know, certainly as Boris Yeltsin took yes, power. Yes, I did. Yes, yes, um, yes, yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that time of, of kind of going to Russia? And indeed, that, yeah, of, yes, yes, yes. What, indeed, what was that yes. like to be Well, I'll there? tell you sort of not, ironically enough, um, what initially attracted me to learning Russian and being a journalist in Russia was the idea that perhaps, um, you know, it was a mysterious place, but one that didn't change all that much. Um, I remember sort of in the mid-80s thinking, well, now, the language, it's Indo-European, but it's quite difficult. It's about the right level of challenge for me. Um, and also, uh, I might be suited quite well to a situation like Brezhnev's Russia, which was fairly static, uh, but nonetheless very mysterious. Um, so one could devote a lot of energy to analyzing a this opaque slice of reality. Well, of course, by the time I got round to actually being in Russia, it was anything but static. It was mm. it was changing so fast that it was literally bewildering and at times frightening, but also mm. exhilarating. Also, mm. just just I mean, a sense of living through absolutely extraordinary moments of history. Mm. Uh, I arrived in Moscow to take up my job there as a foreign correspondent in December '89, <laughs> which was. Uh, roughly uh, the, the time of Sakharov's death, the great dissident Andrei Sakharov. Mm. One of my first memories is of watching people queue for hours upon hours in the snow to pay homage to Andrei Sakharov, and then attending his funeral, uh, which also became a kind of political meeting for the then liberal opposition movement. So I really, really had a sense of uh, extraordinary change in the air, mm. um, because ar around the same time, uh, you know, Russia's first democratic uh, legislature was meeting, uh, and so in a, in a place where, which had been completely monolithic, uh, which had accorded to the Communist Party a complete monopoly of power, you suddenly had an extraordinary diversity of views was being expressed. Mm. And, the, and the mere fact that people were standing up in an official legislature and disagreeing with each other, mm. I mean, that alone was an extraordinarily exhilarating thing to behold. Mm. Because it never happened, it, or it hadn't happened for so long. There'd been such a tight control on, on the indeed, message. Indeed, yeah, yes, 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 um, that, that's, uh, yes, uh, yes, yes. And a one-party yes, system. Yes, yes, indeed, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, what are some recollections of that time, of kind of thing, little anecdotal stories that stand out of kind of stories that you did or that you wrote? or? Well, the general atmosphere in Moscow was of a system and of a... You know, uh, an empire, if you like, that was uh, in very rapid and almost spontaneous dis disintegration. <clears throat> and um, I mean, it was both exhilarating and frightening at the same time, mm. because there seemed to be no obvious limit to how far this disintegration could go. Mm. And because I mean, all the discussion in the West was about, you know, is Gorbachev doing a good job? Is Yeltsin doing a good job? Would Yeltsin be better? And so on. But uh, when you were actually inside that situation, you felt that uh, the, 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 the disintegration was so rapid and so spontaneous mm. that honestly, you know, what this or that leader did, mm. you know, wasn't mm. all that important. Mm. I mean, it was. I mean, it, it, you know, Gorbachev seemed to me like a man sort of, you know, cascading down a mountain, um, you know, from a very great height, uh, mm. and uh, you know, if he was really skilled. He might be able to sort of slightly tilt the direction of the cascade, mm. 
but he, he, he was managing a process or not managing it uh, over which ultimately he had very little control. Mm. Uh, I think that, that, that was the... And so people said, you know, would it be desirable for the Soviet Union to break up? Is it a, you know, something we should encourage or discourage or whatever? In mm. fact, it was just... The, 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 the process was so rapid and so spontaneous mm. that uh, honestly... What we thought was desirable didn't really come into it that much. You know, that, that's mm. uh, one, one of the main lessons. And of course, mm. at an everyday level, mm. um, in certain ways, uh, uh, when I arrived, um, it was quite corrupting to be a Westerner in Moscow mm. um, because uh, you know, the, the, the value of Soviet currency, the ruble, mm. was sort of was, was collapsing. And so if you had you know, even literally a few pounds or a few dollars, mm. Uh, you, were, you were automatically very, very rich by Soviet standards. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, many people in Moscow you know, wanted desperately to have Western friends, mm -hmm. you know, fr frankly, because uh, you know, it, it, it could mean an air ticket, it could, could mean an invitation to the West, mm -hmm. it could mean you know, earning a few dollars or a few pounds. Uh, and you know, the average wage at that time you know, amounted in hard currency terms to you know, maybe l less than $100 a month. Um, and so, you know, you, you, you had the impression of being, well, unhealthily powerful almost as a Westerner. You know, you, you, you felt, I hate to say it, a little bit like sort of Gulliver and Lilliput. Uh, and, it was, it, and I could sense that this wouldn't last long um, and that it would be corrupting for the Western side. Mm. Uh, and yet it, that was very much a part of reality um, mm. for a while, uh, mm. for a while. Mm. I mean, my, my time of full-time residence in the Soviet Union was December 92 to, uh, sorry, uh, December 89 to December 92, th three full years. Mm. So I returned to Russia in spring 93 after a three-month absence. Uh, and although most of the talk about Russia was about anarchy and chaos and further disintegration. I actually noticed something different in the atmosphere. I felt that uh, through all the disorder, Russia was somehow getting its act together again and the state was sort of minimally starting to function, albeit badly. Uh, and above all, there was a change in the relationship between Russians and Westerners. And this played out in many small situations as well, uh, that Westerners noticed that their Russian friends were no longer so obsequious, no longer so prepared to admire everything Western. Mm -hmm. uh, and it actually tested some friendships quite badly. Mm -hmm. uh, but generally, there was a sense in the air that uh, Russia is going to be okay, uh, and it'll need Western help for a while, but not indefinitely. Uh, and. Once it gets back on its feet again, uh, it's going to be self-assertive and not necessarily friendly to the Western powers that did sort of, in a manner of speaking, help or advise with its economic recovery. Mm. So it was, before we go into kind of talking about some of the other um, uh, kind of journalism um, mm. that you, did, you, you wrote during, that you, um, that you worked on during those years, um, I'd just love to stay on Russia for a little bit yeah. because obviously in the world we live in today, uh, Russia is very much becoming a a strong power again. Mm. Well, it is a strong power, it, um, and uh, I grew up in a in the Cold War eighties, where the the kind of was seen as Russia and America were the two superpowers. Mm. The fall of the Soviet Union, as you're kind of alluding to, was seen by you know a teenage Johnny Clark as well. This is the end of Russia as a big superpower, and they're going to be a small kind of 
country, well, you know, small power that will be friendly to the West from now on because they'll be very grateful to the West, you know. And and I think you're kind of alluding to the fact that you saw a lot of that coming. There is a, I mean, Russia is a fascinating place. Um, do you have some kind of ob observations from your time there and kind of how we, the Russia that we see today and Putin's strength, his kind of unchallenged power, his involvement in conflicts around the world and kind of uh, well and not conflict like he's yeah, starting yeah, them yeah, but yeah, he's yeah, certainly yeah, kind yeah, of yeah, proxy yeah, wars yeah, it's, yes, it's, yes, it yeah, seems yeah. like we're kind of going back in time to the 1980s a little indeed, bit indeed indeed yeah, yeah, um, yes, yes, what yes, is it about yeah. Russia that kind of uh, I don't know attracts someone like Putin to emerge and um is there something in it well yes I mean I think what, that well I I wouldn't be the first person to say uh, that there was something in the Russian psyche that uh, respected a strong leader uh, and felt that, you know, with such a vast country, you know, only an iron hand uh, can really rule effectively and so on. I used to hear people say that, you know, uh, there's no other way with us. Snami inache nilzia. With us, it's impossible to do it any other way. Nuzna zhelizna ruka. You need an iron hand to rule us. And um, I remember people saying that uh, at a time when there wasn't much sign of an iron hand. Mm. So I took notice of that. And uh, sure enough, you know, a kind of iron hand has come along. Mm. Um, Russia is, uh, you know, uh, back on its feet militarily. Um, and... I always felt that conventional wisdom underestimated Russia's ability to reorganize itself militarily. Uh, you know, its capacity in many fields of military strength never entirely went away. Uh, and it's able to deploy force across long distance in a way that certainly no West European country can easily do. Um, it's still, you know, the GDP of Russia is still quite small. Um, mm. So it, it is, you know, the total size of the Russian economy is still, you know, that of a medium to sort of lesser West European state. Mm. Uh, but it is certainly mil militarily a player in the world. It's been able to, you know, use force in Syria, you know, by proxy in Libya, um, in Ukraine, of course. Mm. Uh, no, so certainly it, I mean, it, 20 or 30 years ago, um, if you had said that we'd be worried more about Russian strength than about Russian weakness, mm. you know, that would have gone against the grain of conventional wisdom. Although, uh, you know, a modest fellow that I am, mm. I think I did always foresee this. Mm. <laughs> you know, mm. I, I, I felt that, well, what, what, I think what, what I sensed is that if Russia survived at all, it would regain strength. Mm. It seems to me that so historically, um, you know, Russia has been a country that has been always in a state of quite rapid flux mm. between strength and weakness, between uh, sort of disintegration and reintegration. Mm. Um, and you know, uh, it's like a, like, a, like a tide almost. Mm. You know, if, if, if you think how Russia was uh, in the 1920s um, after the revolution, I mean, several years of complete chaos and just I mean, utter anarchy um, reigning across you know, 11 time zones. Mm. Um, and within two decades of that, mm. You know, Stalin had built, you know, one of the mightiest state behemoths ever created in history. Mm. Um, so, you know, uh, there's an, an, ex an extraordinary flux, shall we say. Mm. Um, 
Uh, and you know, there, there are you know, v- various maxims people have, have pronounced about Russia. Mm. Um, one is that Russia is always stronger and weaker than it looks. Mm. Um, I mean, in, in the Soviet days, people used to say contemptuously uh, that the Soviet Union was like upper Volta with rockets. Uh, in other words, you know, it was basically you know, a poor, underdeveloped country with kind of villages with no running water. Uh, it just happened to have a lot of nuclear weapons. Um, uh, and it's, it's certainly true that you know, Russia sort of it measures strength uh, in a different way than you know, a conventional West European country would do. Um, another of the maxims about Russia was you know, by a famous Russian poet, Tchutchev, in the 19th century. Um, he said, Russia cannot be measured by any human yardstick. Uh, in Russia, you can only believe. In other words, it, you know, yeah, well, well, so, uh, well. Wow. Mm. that's brilliant. Um, so I'd, I'd love to go on to um, Georgia. Uh, mm. Is this one of the um, the Caucasus? This kind mm. of um, region you spent time in Azerbaijan, Armenia, but also in <laughs> Georgia at a time when there was real conflict going on. And again, you know, part of this podcast series is just looking at conflict and. Um, it's not often we've been able to sit down with an actual foreign correspondent yeah, who's yeah. kind of lived through great change like in Russia, but also in Georgia. What were some of your memories of that time? I was there a couple of years ago in Tbilisi, um, a beautiful country, beautiful churches. Um, what, what are your memories of that time and what was the conflict like, the nature of it? Well, when, when I first arrived in Georgia, that was uh, December 89, January 1990, I um, mean, it was still um, in a, a very, very you know, attractive and pleasant place to be, um, you know, compared, frankly, with Moscow at that time. Um, it was, a, you know, there was still a, a food on the table. Uh, there was still a sense that sort of, you know, uh, uh, you know, social life, cultural life was intact and even modestly flourishing. Um, there was a lot of uh, sort of trouble in the air in the sense that, you know, there had been a terrible incident in April 89 when, uh, you know, uh, Soviet troops had killed some demonstrators with a kind of poison gas. And that was, a, uh, that's, you know, remembered as a very dark memory by Georgians to this day. So there were dark clouds on the horizon. But nonetheless, uh, you know, Georgia felt like an extraordinarily you know, pleasant and warm and welcoming place to be, um, compared, frankly, you know, with uh, with Moscow at that time, which was a rather uh, bleak and frightening place. And so, over the three years that I was uh, visiting Georgia, I saw it uh, slide from you know that relatively pleasant state uh, into a really appalling and horrific state of civil war and anarchy, much much worse than anything you saw in Moscow, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, life in Moscow was unpredictable, but what you had, you know, especially after the overthrow of President Gamsakhurdia in uh, January 1992, um, you know, you had a situation where uh, it was dangerous to walk the streets. There were kind of, you know, uh, unshaven young men with Kalashnikovs at every corner, and um, people didn't know where the next meal was coming from, uh, and just a, a, an apparent decline into, you know, complete anomie, uh, complete chaos. And, so, I mean, and, and I watched this, and I, you know, watched this with great distress because, you know, you, you can't go to Georgia without making friends and uh, you know on every trip to Georgia I made n- new friends and kept in touch with them and I saw how families were personally affected some families were divided in the factional fighting um, it was just an extraordinary descent from you know being a kind of Shangri-La almost uh, on the surface at least uh, 
to being a place of absolute horror. Mm. And then I'm glad to say a relative recovery since then. Mm. Yeah. And during the time you, uh, even in the 90s, you did go to other war zones. Um, what was it like? What's it like to be a correspondent and to be in a place like Georgia or the uh, Albanian Kosovan border yes, uh, that you yes, went yes, into yes, 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 potentially see? Refugees fleeing to mm. hear bombs, perhaps yeah, to yeah, see yeah, bullets. Yeah. What, 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 uh, well, yes. Yeah. No, 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 I mean, I, I um, have never been a real, real war reporter. Although mm. I've kind of moved among war reporters, um, mm. and it so happened that in that week, the first week of January '92, <coughs> the micro civil war in Georgia was sort of the war in the world at that moment, mm. um, and therefore. You know, the entire uh, core of uh, hardened war reporters descended on Tbilisi, mm. um, and uh, all of them and I, I, I as well stayed in a kind of surreally luxurious hotel, mm. just on the outskirts of the city centre, um, and we made uh, you know cautious trips as far as we dared into the city centre, um, and some of my brave Spanish colleagues actually, um, you know, penetrated into the bunker underneath Parliament where President Gamsahuri was holed up. Um, and uh, you know, uh, uh, shells are raining down, and um, uh, and there was a, a most surreal scene I remember, where we all foregathered in the hotel in the evening, um, and some journalists had been in the bunker. These sort of handful of brave Spanish journalists had been in the bunker um, with with the president, um, and another group of journalists had been uh, with the people who were actually firing the shells from the top wow. of the hill. Wow. Um, so you know, we they all showed their footage, and um, wow. you know, at, uh, very, yeah. at, um, so so I got a taste of sort of what it's you know, what it's like to be a hardcore war reporter, and how mm. these people have often you know an absolute you know, need of the adrenaline that sort of, you know, the sound of gunfire or, you know, uh, gives you all the, the very, very intense emotions mm. uh, that exist mm. uh, in a war situation. Mm. I suppose, I mean, I've had a little taste of that myself. Mm. I mean, I, I went to the, there were kind of um, sort of small sort of local conflicts going on in uh, South Ossetia in the north of Georgia and then on a bigger scale in Abkhazia. Uh, and I've certainly been on the edge of those conflicts I've been in, you know, I remember sort of staying overnight um, in, a, in, in a house in South Ossetia with kind of, you know, gunfire raging the whole time. Um, and uh, you know, it, it brings very, very powerful emotions to the surface. Uh, and it means, you know, you, your life goes into slow motion. Uh, and uh, people's, as, as one friend of mine who's a much more serious war correspondent than I uh, said to me, um, you know, it, it, war is, a, is, a, is a, a situation where people's true face comes out. You know, people throw off their masks, uh, and you realise, you know, who's a coward, mm. you know, who's uh, who is a big-hearted person, uh, who's a brave person. Uh, you know, it's no longer possible to pretend. Mm. So, so I can see why, for some people, mm. war reporting as such becomes mm. a kind of addiction. Mm. I'd, I'd love to talk about a, a part of. Uh, the former Soviet Union, um, that kind of maybe perhaps has resonances with here in Northern Ireland. Um, you spent some time in the former Yugoslavia, yes, uh, yeah, which yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, then yeah, broke yeah. up into uh, is it seven states. Um, uh, that's right. Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, yeah, yes, kind yeah, of yeah, yes, 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 due yes, to the Serbian-Croatian yeah, conflict, yes, yeah, yeah, conflict, yeah, yeah, and then yeah, Bosnia's yeah, own yeah, wars yeah, yeah, between yeah, the Serbian yeah, yeah. population and the. 
yes, Muslim yes, population yes. and Kosovo then becoming yes, 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 we're talking the former communist world, not yeah. yes, not, and, and it's a kind of Yugoslavia was a sort of mini Soviet Union in a way mm. because it, it was a communist federation. Oh right, yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was it was very, I mean, it was estranged diplomatically from the Soviet Union. Right, yes, but Yugoslavia itself had certain power. You know, it had a very, you know, sophisticated um, westernized North Slovenia, mm-hmm. sort of a bit like the Baltic states. Mm. Um, it had, you know, a relatively poor um, South, um, you know, Kosovo, Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, mm-hmm. which were maybe, you know, just as the Soviet Union had a sort of, a, you know, a, mm-hmm. a poorish uh, South. So, mm-hmm. in a sense, the, the communist Yugoslavia mm-hmm. was uh, a, a microcosm of the, of the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Uh, and through the 90s, by this time I was working for the Financial Times, mm-hmm. um, I was very much involved in covering the post-Yugoslav conflict. Again, not strictly speaking as a war correspondent, but as a diplomatic correspondent. I was based in London. Um, I used to travel you know, t- uh, to diplomatic conferences with them. Uh, and I traveled with Douglas Hurd, for example, when mm. he was the British Foreign Secretary. Mm. Or when he, he would sometimes travel jointly with his French counterpart, Alain Juppé. Mm. Uh, and as journalists, we, w- we would tag along with that. Mm. Uh, I was at the Dayton conference in Ohio when the Bosnia War was settled. Wow. Uh, so I, w- I was very much involved in following Western policymaking uh, around Bosnia. Mm. And of course, that did involve going to Bosnia itself um, mm. uh, and, to, and to Croatia. And, and you were there in Sarajevo itself during Yeah, look, the, I was in Sarajevo. No, I can't, no, there were some, I, no, I, I, I have some very brave colleagues who spent most of the conflict actually in Sarajevo when it was under siege. Mm. Now, and I take my, I salute them and I kind of, mm. I edited and you might say I desked their work. I was, mm. uh, so I was, um, I was following Sarajevo so closely that I might almost have been there. Mm. Um, but I don't, you know, I, I, I entirely mm. um, take my hat off to the people who had the courage mm. to, you know, to stay there the whole time. Mm. I went to Sarajevo very shortly after the Dayton Agreement when it was still, you know, quite tense, and the you know the Serb suburbs of Sarajevo were still uh, inhabited by uh, Serb people and the Serb forces and so on, um, and then I went back quite a lot afterwards. Um, I did a story about the 10th anniversary of the Srebrenica massacre. Uh, I went to Mostar at a time when it was still very tensely divided between the two sides of the river. Croats on one side, um, uh, Muslims or Bosniaks on the other. So I, I, I've certainly tasted uh, the atmosphere of, of, of conflict in, in, in Bosnia. Mm. And as you say, there, I mean, there are some sort of weird parallels with, with Northern Ireland mm. uh, in the sense that, you know, you, you have a country where everybody speaks the same language. Uh, you know, they may call it different things, but it is, it is the same language. Mm. They even speak it with the same accent. I mean, there is a Bosnian accent, which is uh, common to... Serbs and Croats and Muslims and so on. Um, to an outsider, um, you know, the warring parties can be actually quite difficult to tell apart. I mean, it's more, it's more obvious what they have in common than what separates them. Mm. Um, and yet, uh, you know, those differences were still salient enough mm. uh, for the place to descend. You know, once the Communist Federation broke up, you know, the, the place descended into a really horrific war mm. and a war of terrible ethnic cleansing and. Mm torture and you know horrors that we thought would not be seen in Europe again. Mm. I remember being um, uh, involved in a course uh, a few uh, probably nearly 10 years ago and on it were a number of people from um, well there was a there were Croatians there were Serbians uh, and there was a there was a Bosnian Muslim there um, or someone ethnic Muslim yes, yes, background yes, yes. and we were studying scripture and different things mm. in the Bible and 
And at one point I, I asked, we were in uh, Croatia at the time, actually. Mm. I asked the, the Bosnian uh, to read a passage. I said, would you read that in Croatian? And he said, I will read it in Bosnian. You know? and, uh, <laughs> exactly. Of course, yes, it's yes, exactly, exactly yes, the same yes, yes, language. So here in Northern Ireland, yeah, yeah. we have a conflict that goes back many years. We look the same. We speak the same language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you, you've said to me, you know, if you went to the former Yugoslavia in 1985, it would have seemed like those ethnic differences were, were fading away. Yes, that's right. Um, and that's there was yes, a sense yes, of yeah. one big yes, Yugoslavia. Yes, so yeah. when I've, I go to Bosnia pretty much every year for the last four or five years, and I meet a number of people who sometimes will say they kind of miss Yugoslavia. You know, they, they wish yes, it could yeah, be just that country where we all lived in peace, you know. But somehow it, it fell apart, you know. Um, and when what are your kind of reflections on comparing a place like that to Northern Ireland and ethnic difference, religious difference? Uh, is it part of human nature for us just to always fall apart? Or well, I suppose in mean, communist Yugoslavia, it had it had the merits and the faults of you know an authoritarian multinational state. Um, uh, you know, it, it had you know, a ruling ideology. It had you know a party, the Communist League, which had the monopoly of power, um, and uh, you know it had a you know a, a, a powerful. Although it was a you know a, an attractive and quite prosperous place, and uh, seemed life seemed to be much freer than it did in other parts of Eastern Europe. You know, nonetheless, I mean, it, it was a place where people kept an eye on each other, and where you know people who strongly expressed one nationalist line or another could go to prison. Um, uh, and so some of the people who uh, were protagonists in the war uh, had actually you know, spent time in prison in communist Yugoslavia mm -hmm. simply for advocating you know, one uh, national or religious cause or another, uh, not in a violent way, uh, but simply the mere act of strongly advocating you know, the merits and the interests and the historic rights of one particular group was a punishable offence. Um, and that's, you know, uh, of course, I mean, outrageous in terms of our understanding of free speech and liberty and so on. But it, it created a framework for better or worse um, in which people could live together peacefully and quite prosperously. Um, I mean, it was unsustainable in the end, you know, to a large, you know, and it, it was very uh, unsound economically. And to a large extent, mm -hmm. communist Yugoslavia was kept going by Western credits. Um, and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, in the final years of communist Yugoslavia, it was a question of pumping more and more money into the federal government mm -hmm. to keep the place in existence. Um, mm -hmm. And yet it was ultimately an economic basket case. And it had some, you know, quite prosperous parts, uh, parts of Croatia, Slovenia, certainly, that were subsidizing the poorer parts. Mm -hmm. And that whole show could only be kept going by endless Western loans. Mm. And at a certain point, rightly or wrongly, uh, you know, the West uh, pulled the plug mm. and said, you know, it's no longer mm. necessary or worthwhile mm. for us to be pumping money into this place. Mm. Um, and then, you know, almost spontaneously, um, you know, well, you know, multi-party democracy came, and in each constituent republic, mm. nationalist forces came to the mm. you know, came to the fore and. Um, in Serbia, you had a particularly kind of um, uh, toxic concoction of uh, sort of, if you like, uh, nationalism and a sort of imperialism in the sense that the Serbs felt that they were, um, you know, that they had been the dominant force in the Yugoslav f uh, Federation and they 
um, and, and they were destined to lose out in the event of a total disintegration. Mm. Um, but I guess one of the things that uh, is thought-provoking from a Northern Irish point of view mm. is that the communist Yugoslav system rested on um, suppressing or channeling to a large extent memories of the terrible things that had happened in the Second World War. Mm. Um, I mean, you, you, you were allowed to remember the partisans and the, uh, in a very selective way, mm. um, you know, a, a very selective version of Second World War history was told. Um, and, but individual groups were not allowed to nurse or express their own grievances. Um, and so, for example, in, in, in Croatia, there was a terrible uh, concentration camp uh, run by Croats who were pro-Nazi and this was a, a place where many Jews and many Serbs were killed. Um, the numbers have been exaggerated but nonetheless it was a, it, it, uh, it was really, you know, a, 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 a terrible place and a place of which uh, you know, the, the, the victims and the bereaved uh, you know, maintain awful memories for decades afterwards which were not expressed because it, was just, it was, wasn't part of the, the official ideology so there was there was no context in which people could freely share the pain that they suffered in the second world war um and you know it might have seemed if you'd gone there in the 1980s that was all to the good in fact that people that those dark memories had been successfully exercised and uh, you know, the country was looking forward but in fact you know once um you know the straitjacket was removed you know, those memories became came flooding back and it was very easy for nationalist politicians to say, we are now going to avenge all the terrible things that we mm. suffered in the Second World War and we were never allowed to talk about. Mm. So in a sense, it's a very bad advertisement for the idea that you can literally forget the past, mm. that the past does have to be remembered, but it has to be, you know, but, but also remembered in a way that doesn't give any side the monopoly of pain. Mm. Mm. Uh, yes, yeah, so I remember being uh, in... Um, in Bosnia, well, I've been a number of times, and um, uh, and I've, I've been to a museum um, in, in Banja Luka where it kind of commemorates the the death of um, uh, the, um, yeah of, of many Serbs in Croatian kind of yes, concentration yeah, camps, yeah, yes, if you yeah, like, yeah, yeah. in the Second World War. And so, what you're talking about is memory. We could probably go down that line for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Um, but are you saying that, I suppose you're just alluding to the importance of somehow of, of memory and acknowledging the past. And I think that is, it's not controversial, but it's, it's one of the things that we wrestle with in post-conflict countries, is how do you deal with the past? You know, do we have endless uh, tribunals or investigations, commissions mm. to kind of go back and find out the truth? But of course, in a country like Northern Ireland, you've got literally thousands of events that happened and how do you kind of dig it all up? Um, yes. Is there any kind of thoughts that you have, maybe particularly when reflecting on Bosnia, former Yugoslavia, on like how they could have done it well or how they could have acknowledged it well, how even in Northern Ireland, um, I know that's not your job to kind of pontificate on how they mm. could have done it better. You're reporting yeah, yeah, on what they did. Is there any mm. thoughts on that, like uh, how it could have been done in a better way? Yes. Well, well, of course, I mean, the issue of you know, truth remembrance comes up sort of twice over in the context of Bosnia and mm. the Yugoslav wars in that you know, part of the reasons why the war started or why it spread so quickly was because of these you know, uh, undealt with memories of the Second World War. Mm. 
And then, you know, when the ghastly conflict of the 90s unfolded, there was an exceptionally elaborate judicial process. There was a dedicated tribunal which is you know, sat in The Hague and has heard dozens of cases. And, you know, and, and really, uh, it's unique in the world, I think, that you know, so much money, so many resources were invested in um, uh, going over the a recent conflict uh, uh, judicially and you know dozens of convictions for crimes against humanity and so on so um, and uh, I suppose w one of the points about that is it's unlikely ever to be repeated uh, just uh, as perhaps because it was happening in Europe on Europe's doorstep um, and you know, really physically quite close to The Hague maybe it was felt that this could be uh, an exemplary case of you know, post-conflict justice, um, and but I have to say that it, it hasn't uh, really had the desired uh, desired effect of making people think hard about what their side was responsible for. Mm. I mean, uh, the, well, the majority of people convicted uh, in The Hague have been Serbs. I mean, there have been people of all nationalities, but the, 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 the Serbs have, have had the lion's share. Um, and could I say that those convictions and those cases and the evidence heard, has it made people among the Bosnian Serbs and in Serbia itself, has it made them reflect on the bad things that were done in their name? Mm -hmm. No, I, I mean, I, I, I very much fear it hasn't. Mm -hmm. um, and on the contrary, um, mm -hmm. uh, the process has fed a kind of victimhood. Mm. That we're always treated more harshly than anybody else, mm. and you know, why are more of our people being tried than mm. than than other groups? And mm. uh, and I suppose the, the fact that it was a foreign court from their point of view, mm. the fact that people were kind of arrested and then mm. airlifted to a foreign country, albeit not far away, that that unfortunately uh, uh, exacerbated the problem of people. Um, you know, ref refusing to accept the legitimacy of the process uh, mm. and saying it's all you know weighted against us, mm. um, and so the trials in the Hague. I mean, they brought great satisfaction from the point of view of the victims, and mm. maybe that was that had to be, and that was right and proper. But it didn't bring the the sort of contrition and self-examination mm. on the part of people who were you know in some sense or other collectively responsible, mm. uh, and so th th I mean, th that's made me. Sort of, in general, a bit sceptical about um, you know highly expensive judicial processes mm. uh, as a form of conflict resolution. Mm. I mean, I sat in in the um, you know, International Criminal Court in The Hague on the uh, trial of some you know, very powerful Kenyan politicians. You know, an immensely expensive process that uh, you know barristers and judges even were sort of being paid mm. fabulous sums of money, mm. uh, and indeed the process of bringing witnesses from the heart of Africa to The Hague is all highly, highly expensive. Mm. But was it uh, actually doing the job of making, of reconciling people or making people think harder about what their side might be collectively responsible mm. for? I wasn't, mm. I wasn't completely convinced. It, it made me, in general, a bit skeptical about sort of expensive uh, and elaborate justice mm. uh, as a way of promoting reconciliation, at least in the absence of other things. Uh, including kind of truth discovery and dialogue and um, a forum in which people can you know, articulate their own pain and without claiming a monopoly of pain. Mm. Um, so uh, uh, no, uh, 
justice alone just doesn't seem to do it. And yeah, then, um, that's very, that's very helpful. Um, I, there's so much we could kind of go down that line. I, I was just talking in an interview yesterday about this definition of reconciliation as a place. Uh, John Paul Lederach's definition mm. of the place where truth, mercy, justice, and peace meet. Mm. And what you're alluding to, I suppose, is if reconciliation is simply justice or truth, but there's no kind of desire for dialogue, for some sense of healing, restoration, then it becomes justice and truth can become almost like a, a weapon to use against the other side or it kind of... Indeed, um, yes, yes. And I, I, mean, I, yeah. and I think that in some situations... Uh, justice can pull in one direction, uh, reconciliation in another, hmm. uh, and truth sometimes in yet another. Hmm. Um, I'm not even that convinced that justice is all that appropriate a tool for truth discovery. Hmm. Uh, in sense that, that well, I mean, well, as the as the truth and reconciliation process in South Africa showed, I mean there are situations where um, you know truth will come out more easily. Mm-hmm. Um, in conditions of amnesty, you know. So, I mean, well, justice and the threat of draconian punishment can actually, uh, in some circumstances, make it harder to discover truth. Mm. Well, it's uh, very good. Um, Yeah, the... um yeah, I, I, it's such an interesting kind of line of uh, conversation. <laughs> I, I've been always very fascinated by South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, by the Kikacha courts of Rwanda. Mm. They yeah. do seem to um, be examples of a more like what we could call restorative justice than retributive justice. They were about yeah. kind of communities kind of coming together to tell the truth so that they could heal um, rather than a you know a, a definitive who's right and who's wrong and a, and a, a sentence being carried out and and it's very profound to think that that process while perhaps necessary with the crimes of the Balkan Wars hasn't necessarily resulted in yeah, yeah, yeah. in a in a more reconciled uh, context now. Um, I mean, if, if I may just add one thing, yeah. I mean, if I were, I mean, if you know, I I, I think that. In all sides in the Balkan Wars, mm. you know, uh, there was a great denial of what you know their particular faction had been collectively guilty of, mm. Um, mm. Uh, and um, maybe especially true on the Serbian side, um, mm. in the sense that you know the the, 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 the wars sort of ended badly, very very badly for the Serbs as a people, um, that they were you know cleansed from Croatia, they were um, cleansed from large parts of Bosnia which they had occupied or uh, uh, and so you know there was a huge flow of refugees into Serbia proper uh, and so you know th- uh, and uh, if any Serb is inclined to think well history is always weighted against us you know they had plenty of evidence to support that idea um, and you know uh, I've, I've, I've talked to uh, to Bosnian Serbs around um, in the in the area of Srebrenica, and they are in complete denial of the fact that in their name, you know, one of the terrible atrocities of post-war Europe was committed. Uh, you know, they will construct any number of arguments to show why the uh, it was actually um, well, the, the other side did just as bad, or mm. or what we did didn't really happen. And uh, if, if if but if if you were trying to construct a process where um, people were brought face to face with what had been done in their name. Somehow, uh, I mean, it, it, it would have helped tremendously for it to be happening sort of 
uh, in the region uh, and, 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 and not in The Hague. Um, mm. Uh, mm. And, um, I mean, there was, there was enormously elaborate intervention in Bosnia and in former Yugoslavia in general after the war you know, uh, with uh, you know, economic aid, peacekeepers um, you know, uh, uh, NGOs, advisors I mean, you know, rarely has a war been followed by so much intervention um, but what there wasn't I didn't feel was um, you know, an attempt to, to through education or through you know, uh, you know, to, 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 to bring people face to face uh, with what their own side had actually per- perpetrated. Um, a lot of that was done kind of off stage in foreign places whose legitimacy could be denied. Um, you know, and that's, that's, the, that's, the, um, that's the one thing I think was missing. And um, I mean, I fear that you know, a lot of old grievances will simply fester on as a result in them. Mm. Okay, you've, as a journalist, you don't kind of really write about your own personal yeah. uh, faith. Um, that's uh, not your job. Um, and it probably wouldn't be your, the normal habitat to kind of mm. put this kind of conversation where we're discussing foreign correspondent work. But I suppose because my passion is both conflicts in the world, like we've been yeah. talking mm. about, but also the dimension of how religious faith and belief um, can sometimes exacerbate conflicts and make them yeah, worse yeah, yeah. and make mm. them more intractable. Um, and and I've seen so many beautiful examples of where faith builds bridges. And, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. you know, just a couple yeah, yeah, yeah. of weeks yeah. ago, we uh, lost uh, the former chief rabbi, Jonathan Sachs, which this yeah, yeah, yeah. His phrase we use in this uh, podcast, we're, we're to be guardians mm. of the flame. You were your own faith journeys. You were received into the uh, the Orthodox Church in uh, 1996. That's right. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, yeah, yeah, I would yes, love yeah, to yes, hear yeah, yeah, a well. bit about orthodoxy uh, indeed, yeah, to yeah, kind yeah. of bring this interview to a close. Partly because I, I personally, and I think there's a growing number of kind of, I think people like myself who are kind of from mm. from coming from a more of an evangelical or Protestant background, yeah, yes, who yes, find yeah. as we discover what orthodoxy teaches something quite beautiful yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yes, yes, and, yes. and something that perhaps has been lacking in our own yes, faith. Yes, 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 um, yes. Can you tell us a little bit about it that is. story? Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yes, yes, I would yes, love yes, to hear kind of resonant, what resonates with you about the tenets of kind of orthodoxy as a, you know, what is it that it stands on that indeed, kind of is indeed, so beautiful? Yeah, yeah, yes, yes, absolutely. Yes, yes. Well, um, no, no, Providence act in a mysterious way. Um, I returned from Russia, from full-time residence in Russia in 1993. Um, I set about um, writing a book about uh, Russia, including quite a lot of Russian history and you know, the, the uh, transition in Russia. Um, and I found myself studying quite intensely the history of the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, uh, and I had two separate reactions. Um, um, and one was that the stance taken um, towards public events by the church at many times in history, but including the Soviet period, was uh, you know almost indefensible, um, and that the um, the Russian the leadership of the Russian church uh, in the communist era as a, as a method of survival had uh, compromised with Stalin and even fawned on Stalin, it seemed, um, you know, in a way that was you know, r- really quite horrifying to somebody from a Western perspective. Um, and then I felt that 
uh, you know, the church had managed to, to perpetuate its existence by effectively becoming an arm of Soviet foreign policy uh, and appearing in the World Council of Churches and essentially articulating Soviet foreign policy. Uh, and all this, you know, for, for a Westerner, was very shocking. Um, and yet, um, something else was going on at the same time. Um, I looked at kind of the existential claims of orthodoxy. I looked at its doctrines, its teachings, its worship. Um, now, this happened to be a time of great personal turmoil for me. In the space of 18 months, I lost three close people, my brother and two close friends, both journalists, actually, both war correspondents who died in the course of duty. Um, so I was undergoing, you know, quite a degree of personal turbulence at the time. Uh, yes. And I mean, as I studied um, the doctrines, the practices, the ethos of the church in itself, uh, as opposed to, you know, what public stance its leaders might take, uh, you know, I found it more and more compelling. I found that, uh, you know, I, I felt uh, I was faced with an integrity um, that could handle disaster, personal tragedy, collective tragedy, um, that didn't shy away from the brutality of the world. That's, uh, you know, Orthodox Christianity in itself, as it were, which I, which I learned to distinguish from the particular stances that might be taken by its hierarchs at particular moments in, in history. Um, and uh, there was a, there was a, a, a time in, in January 93 when I went to the States for a research trip, mainly um, to pursue my investigations of Russian history and to meet white Russian people, emigres in the States, and to, um, to talk to Russia experts in the States. Um, and uh, on, the, on the flight out, um, uh, I had, um, as it happens, a, a Russian priest beside me who didn't speak much else except Russian, who was very grateful to have me to, to chat to. Um, and that was a, you know, a, a pleasant experience. Uh, and on the flight back two weeks later, who was sitting beside me, um, but uh, Bishop Callistos Ware, who's probably the best-known English exponent of the Orthodox faith. Mm. So I felt that sort of, you know, something... I was getting a message somehow. Wow, <laughs> wow. so <laughs> Ware is a, is a mm. you know, remarkable mm. mind and theologian. Mm. And, um, I know that you, you, you wouldn't really want to kind of critique um, Protestantism mm. or Catholicism or, or anything, but, but what is... Can, can you kind of pinpoint some certain things, uh, uh, certain kind of... Uh, uh, real kind of um, parts of orthodoxy that you feel stand out as possibly kind of obscured in Protestant or Catholic faith or, 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 or you know, parts of it that you find Indeed, sort of yeah, manifestly yes, yes, kind yes, of beautiful? Well, um, I felt that um, um, uh, in, in orthodoxy, I mean, um, you know, prayer for the departed is very important. Mm. Um, and although you know we are quite agnostic in some ways about the state in which the departed find themselves, yes. uh, we nonetheless find it very important to pray daily for the souls of uh, loved ones who passed on, and to feel that we are part of a community, um, uh, and that the the departed remain connected with our community. Mm -hmm. um, that was certainly a very attractive feature. Mm -hmm. um, and the whole, you know, the, the rituals around death, around um, the funeral services, uh, 
Um, I mean, orthodoxy is both very realistic about uh, the fact of physical death. Um, the coffin is usually open, and you know people line up to give a f you know a final embrace to the, the to, to, to the loved one. So there's no there's no denial uh, of the physical reality of death. Um, and yet, um, there is a very, very powerful af affirmation of ultimate resurrection, uh, and of the fact that um, uh, that, that uh, we, 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 we pray for the dead because inevitably they'll have sinned. And, and there's a line that's repeated over and over again because there's no man living who has not sinned. Mm. Um, so we pray for the dead's dead person's sins to be to, 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 to be forgiven, overlooked. Mm. Um, uh, but nonetheless, and, and we um, pray for them to be placed in a place of light mm. where the light of thy countenance shineth, uh, mm. which seems, you know, a, a humane thing to do. Um, I, just, I just, I like the combination of realism about the, you know, the tragedy of physical death, mm. uh, and, but also uh, you know, hope. And there's a very powerful line in the Orthodox funeral service. Um, I am the image of God's inexpressible glory, even though I bear the wounds of sin. Mm. Um, so you're at once, I mean, both on your own behalf and on behalf of the, the person who's died, uh, you're affirming that that, that, that we have divinity within us, uh, but we also have sinfulness within us. Uh, um, I remember being absolutely overwhelmed when I read that line first. Um, I, am, I, am the, I am the image of, of God's inexpressible glory, even though I bear the wounds of sin. Mm. Mm. Um, there's, a, there's a whole lot uh, I think we could really discuss about, um, uh, about faith and, and, and mm. orthodoxy. Um, Maybe just to kind of ground it in a in an actual text, uh, I would I'll pass you your your Greek Bible, and I would we've discussed in in the past a particular mm. reading of, for instance, Romans chapter five. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and how um, reading it in the original Greek, which you yes, read, yes, I yes, asked yes, yes, Bruce yes, yes, once. Um, you know, I remember asking you once. Uh, uh, which Bible translation do you prefer? And, you know, of course you said you prefer not to read translations. <laughs> exactly. You know, you, yes, you yes, read yes, it yes, in yes. the original Greek, um, yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, the New Testament in the original Greek. Uh, so I'd love to kind of touch on this passage mm. in Romans 5, just briefly, yeah, yeah, partly because yeah, yeah. it kind of shows the importance of uh, being able to speak or understand yes, yes, Greek yes, in yeah, some yeah, form. Yeah. But it also probably touches on an orthodox understanding of, of sin and the world and you know, for many, like myself, probably growing up more in a that kind of Augustinian original sin kind of uh, approach to, to life. And, and I think mm. your reading of Romans 5 um, is probably more true to orthodoxy, but possibly more true to mm. the Greek, and, yes, uh, yes, yes, yes. the actual Greek. So I'll get up and get that. No, I reckon, yes. Mm. <laughs> okay, no. Yeah. Um. Um. 
Yes, I think it's generally true to say that orthodoxy takes a more charitable, even sort of, a, sort of a somewhat gentler view of human sinfulness. It's not as pessimistic as as Augustine was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it generally, I mean, orthodoxy regards uh, Augustine as a great teacher of the church. He's known as Blessed Augustine, uh, but as somebody uh, who was also uh, wrong about certain things, uh, including what seems to us his extreme pessimism about the state of the human being, about human sinfulness. Um, and as part of that sort of somewhat more charitable reading of human sinfulness, um, we do read a particular chapter in the Epistle to the Romans in a different way. Mm. Listen, I'll do my best to translate from Greek. And the very last bit um, uh, is can be read in, in a number of different ways uh, and, ex- and explain why. So translating as I go along from Greek... Um, uh, And therefore, just as through one man sin came into the world and through sin death, and uh, just as uh, death came to all human beings, um, and then there's a a last four words which take a bit of interpretation, uh, but they seem to mean uh, as a result of which or through which all sinned. Uh, Now, it's not. It's a difficult bit of translation, um, but uh, in the Western world, um, the emphasis is on uh, uh, the idea that because Adam sinned, we are therefore all automatically ipso facto guilty of sin. That sin is passed down almost genetically uh, uh, from one generation to another, um, and that we will be held to account uh, for the first sin, the sin committed by Adam. Um, Whereas uh, orthodoxy would take a more charitable view. It would say that uh, what this verse seems to say, which is that um, uh, Adam, in a sense, opened the door to sin. Uh, He created a world uh, in which sin was a likelihood, a possibility, something we were in perpetual danger of falling into, Um, but that ultimately uh, we will be found responsible not for Adam's sins, but only for our own. Um, And that leads to a particular interpretation of those four words at the end of the verse, as a result of which you're uh, all sinned. Now, um, what the orthodox reading of that would be that um, uh, we've all fallen into sin because of the general state of sinfulness and deathfulness that was created uh, you know, by our first ancestors, by Adam, that we're in a world where sinfulness abounds Death is a kind of permanent reality. Um, there's a kind of deathfulness about about fallen creation um, that 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 tempts us into sin. Um, so, as a result of which, the witch refers to death. Um, whereas in Western readings, and this is, I think, sort of confirmed by a particular Latin translation, um, it's more uh, the idea that because Adam sinned, uh, as a result, you know, uh, uh, that we are automatically found guilty of what he did. Um, whereas we would say that that Adam created a sort of an environment, an environment, um, you know, of, 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 a, sort of a, a deathful environment um, that makes it tempting for us to sin, but we are not automatically held responsible for anything except mm. that which we do ourselves. Mm. 
Uh, so it's um, it's it's kind of comparing it's kind of comparing a, an idea that um, yeah, sin is kind of passed biologically, genetically down through generations indeed, indeed. Yeah, yeah, yes, to yeah, yes, a yeah. sense of death being in the world and um, our either cooperation with that death or our um, desire to move against it Indeed, and, uh, yes, in a yeah, more yes, yes, restorative yes, yes, way yes, again yes, uh, yes, to yes, use yes, that word restorative I could add to that though, that's um, uh, probably one reason why uh, with no disrespect to anybody um, the Orthodox Church doesn't have a feast of the Immaculate Conception of the Virgin Mary now uh, you know, the, the Virgin Mary the Mother of God is held in immense honor in the Orthodox Church, um, as you know, b- through the very strong belief in the incarnation, mm-hmm. flows you know an infinite respect for the person who made the incarnation possible uh, of her own free will. Um, but um, the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception uh, seems to us uh, to flow from an idea that, in a sense, all acts of of of, of natural generation of all acts of procreation involve transmitting biologically the sin of Adam from one generation to another uh, and therefore you have a problem with the mother of God if she was a such a wonderful person how can she have been free of sin surely uh, and therefore uh, you know the, the, uh, y- y- you need a doctrine of her immaculate conception mm-hmm. uh, and that seems to us unnecessary mm-hmm. uh, if you uh, if you set aside the idea that sin is transmitted biologically. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the Immaculate Conception being this idea that Mary was conceived without sin. Indeed, she was yeah, without yes, sin. Well, Bruce, uh, like, there's so much more we could talk about. Russia, former Yugoslavia, Georgia, Orthodoxy, theology. Um, yeah. I'm glad that I live next door and I get to kind of have this ongoing dialogue. Um, and I'm sure anyone watching yeah. this, you can yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, comment mm. and ask. Yeah. Bruce is very good about entering into dialogue. Sure. And, yeah. mm. um, I think that what you've touched on in this interview is uh, is fascinating. You've you've traced, um, yeah, a, a recent history in Europe of great powers mm. falling, of conflicts emerging. You've touched on, I think, quite profoundly in a way that relates to us here in Northern Ireland is what do we do with the past? Mm. What do we do with these memories? How do we remember things in a way that doesn't shame one mm. side or put all the blame yeah. on one? Mm. Um, and, and as we've talked about theology, you've, you've, un, you've just scratched the surface a little <laughs> bit uh, of a, maybe a view yeah. of God that certainly cares about the dead. And um, I know when my own father died, um, uh, who's, who's, you know, who went to Upperlands, your mutual ancestral home. He went there in the 50s, I think, in the first, the first mm. time. Um, I know when he passed away, you know, I did wrestle with um, what what does death mean? You mm. know, where is where is he now? I mm. felt so final. He felt so gone. And I did find a lot of, um, I found a lot of consolation in, in understanding this idea of a great cloud of witnesses, yes, that yeah. we are part of a community, mm. both of the living and the dead. Mm. And, and, um, and there was something about that that's nourishing and comforting. And you've touched mm. on that. Mm. And... And I think even that idea of, of sin in the world, I mean, we live, a lot of what I talk about is conflict. That's death in the world, mm. you know. What do we do about that death? Are we just biologically destined to, mm. to continue it? Mm. Or can we imagine a world where 
conflict gets transformed. Yes, indeed. Yes, yes, yes. Indeed. So, uh, Bruce, I want to thank you for giving me your time in this uh, brisk uh, yeah, December yeah, yes, morning. Yeah, yes, it's yes, yes, quite yeah. cool. It's uh, we've got birds flying around us as we talk. It mm. kind of um, it's it's quite a it's a beautiful scene here in Restrever. But uh, thanks for giving me well, uh, giving us yes, the time. Yes, and, really uh, enjoyed it. Yes, and, yes, uh, yes. It's, it's just brilliant stuff. Good. Thank well, you so much. Enjoyed it so much. Yeah, yes, it's good. Really.